Esther's tale teaches us the eternal vulnerability of the Jews and therefore the eternal necessity, not only of vigilance, but also of political judgment. The book then is a reminder to Jews from generation to generation that politics matters. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 269, Life, Death, and Taxes. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote to a French friend of his, the scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy. In the letter, Franklin reflected on the recent major moments in America, such as the ratification of the Constitution and the instantiation of its new government, but he referenced as well the chaos in France. Franklin wrote, quote, It is now more than a year since I have heard from my dear friend Leroy. What can be the reason? Are you still living? Or have the mob of Paris mistaken the head of a monopolizer of knowledge for a monopolizer of corn and paraded it about the streets upon a pole? Great part of the news we have had from Paris for near a year past has been very afflicting. I sincerely wish and pray it may all end well and happy, both for the king and the nation. The voice of philosophy, I apprehend, can hardly be heard among those tumults. If anything material in that way had occurred, I am persuaded you would have acquainted me with it. However, pray let me hear from you a little of tenor, for though the distance is great and the means of conveying letters not very regular, a year's silence between friends must needs give uneasiness. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Franklin went on a little bit and then ended, Adieu, my dear friend, and believe me, ever yours. Benjamin Franklin would pass away soon after, and though his quip about death and taxes is often assumed to be original, it has now been revealed through extensive research, and by extensive research I refer to my looking it up on Google, that earlier authors had written this first. But Franklin's very reference to much being uncertain in the context of his discussion of France is apt, for the chaos that rose in that country is a reflection of how a sweeping change can suddenly occur within a social setting. And we bear this in mind as we draw the book of Esther to a close, reflecting on the fact that a book that spoke so often about the looming specter of death suddenly, strangely, turned to taxes in a series of verses that, rightly understood, teach us something profound about politics itself. The book of Esther draws to a close by describing how Mordechai and Esther ordained the celebration of Purim for generations to come. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Avichael, and Mordechai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed, according as Mordechai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their descendants the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Written in the book or scroll is a way of saying, according to the rabbis, that the book of Esther became part of the biblical canon. This verse would have seemed to have been a good one with which to conclude. But no, there are several other verses. First, we have this. And the king Achishverosh laid a tax upon the land and upon the isles of the sea, in all the acts of his power and of his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordechai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? What is going on here? Why do we care that Ahasuerus placed a tax on his empire? Is this not a bit anticlimactic? 
It is anticlimactic, and that I think is precisely the point. In describing the tax, the verse simultaneously emphasizes how Ahasuerus' hold on power remained absolute, and also the equanimity with which the king turned from his original focus on killing to seemingly less serious economic concerns, which is exactly what is to be expected from a king who is subject to massive mood swings. This, in turn, means that while we rejoice with the conclusion of the story and with reading of the salvation of the Jews, at the same time Esther's triumph, rightly understood, ought to leave us with a deep sense of foreboding as to her future, and therefore regarding the future of the Jewish people as well. Let us consider, ladies and gentlemen, could those who suddenly found favor with, say, Henry VIII in the Tudor court remain confident of their future well-being? If Thomas Cromwell took the place of Thomas More, did not Cromwell eventually suffer More's fate? Was not Anne Boleyn, who replaced Catherine, herself in the end also replaced by the mercurial megalomaniacal monarch that was her husband? Could not Mordechai and Esther themselves ultimately end up on the gallows? Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik once put it this way, quote, If a prime minister who just yesterday enjoyed the full confidence and trust of the king was suddenly executed, then who is wise and clairvoyant enough to assure us that the same unreasonable, absurd, neurotic change of mood and mind will not repeat itself? Where is the fortune teller who could assert or assure us that Ahasuerus will not replace Queen Esther with another fair woman, that he will not do to Esther exactly what he did to Vashti? End quote. The Purim tale, in other words, reminds us that a government and the society it oversees can suddenly experience a transformation and that it can all of a sudden turn against its most vulnerable minorities in a matter of moments. That is why, Rabbi Soloveitchik further argued, Esther's story is no triumphal tale. On the contrary, it is, quote, the book of the vulnerability of man in general, and specifically of the vulnerability of the Jew, end quote. Purim is one of the most joyous and jocular days in the Jewish calendar. But when we think about it, we realize that we cannot ponder its story without an accompanying sense of foreboding. Rabbi Soloveitchik added, quote, The events recorded in the Megillah are nonsensical. A king signs away the lives of hundreds of thousands of people without even inquiring about their identity. Three or four days later, he denies the whole story. He does not remember that such an edict was ever signed and sealed and that Haman was responsible for it. Can such a king be relied upon? Purim could not have been instituted just as a festival, a day of merrymaking. It had to be set up as a dual holiday dual in character, and dual in manner of observance. Where did the Jew experience the most absurd vulnerability, if not in Shushan? End quote. So Rabbi Soloveitchik reflected, and the fact that it was he who reflected thus is not a coincidence. As I noted in my article about Esther in the New York Times, Rabbi Soloveitchik as a young man in the 1920s had traveled from Eastern Europe to study philosophy in the University of Berlin. The city was then a mecca of Jewish intellectual and cultural achievement. Rabbi Soloveitchik would have met other Jews who saw themselves as both German and Jewish, who had served in the Kaiser's military in World War I, who were patriotically committed to their country's future. They might have spoken about enlightenment and progress and religious acceptance in their society. Then that very same society embraced a Haman, and the lives that the Jews knew there disappeared forever. It is small wonder, then, that Rabbi Soloveitchik, who escaped this inferno, would recognize the frightening implications of Jewish vulnerability that is inherent in the tale of the Book of Esther. And if, despite this terrifying lesson, we still continue to rejoice on Purim, it is because, as I further argued in the article, 
we are celebrating the political heroism of its main Jewish characters. And first and foremost, of Esther, who came to understand Jewish vulnerability and left us her political genius as her legacy. She, in turn, is joined by Mordechai in his own vigilance on behalf of the Jewish people. That is the import of the final verse in the book. For Mordechai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking good for his people, and speaking peace to all his descendants. In the Bible, the story of Mordechai and Esther embodies the birth of Jewish diaspora political leadership. Esther's tale teaches us the eternal vulnerability of the Jews, and therefore the eternal necessity, not only of vigilance, but also of political judgment. The book, then, is a reminder to Jews from generation to generation that politics matters. In a striking homiletical comment, the sages of the Talmud, known in Jewish popular parlance as Chazal, an acronym for Our Sages of Blessed Memory, suggests that while the book concludes by describing Mordechai as accepted by the multitude of his brethren, he was not, they say, celebrated by all of his brethren. There were some Jews, the rabbis write, who dismissed the importance of Mordechai's political pursuits, who argued that engaging in spiritual endeavors would have been more valuable. The point, then, of the book's conclusion is that Mordechai rightly understood how critical politics actually is. Expanding on this Midrashic Talmudic comment, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein put it this way, quote, Mordechai, for his part, argued that political power was exactly what the generation needed. And Rabbi Lichtenstein adds that, the phenomenon of the king committing the kingdom to whatever occurs to him at a given time, depending on his mood, is one of the most prominent themes of the Megillah. End quote. For Rabbi Lichtenstein, the very mercurial, terrifying nature of Ahasuerus reminds us of the vulnerability of the Jews. And the concluding verse of the book highlights Mordechai's commitment, therefore, to engaging in politics on behalf of his people. Or as Rabbi Lichtenstein adds, quote, Mordechai therefore argued, who can guarantee that Ahasuerus will not change his mind once again, all of a sudden, and be drawn after some new Haman who may decide to attack the Jews? Would it be responsible to ignore such a fragile political situation? End quote. Thus, the frightening aspects of the Book of Esther are meant to serve as a warning to future Jewish generations. The great scholar of Spanish Jewry, Professor Bencio Netanyahu, pointed out that even though the Inquisition had already existed for some time, had already begun its monstrous activities. Nevertheless, some leaders of Sephardic Jewry never seemed to see the expulsion coming. This, he wrote, was due to what he called, quote, man's natural reluctance to draw radical conclusions which imply uprooting oneself from a comfortable spot, end quote. Professor Netanyahu added that just as German Jews, quote, failed to foresee Hitler's rise to power at any time during the period preceding that rise, so the Jews of Spain failed to notice, even a few years before the expulsion, the mountainous wave which was approaching to overwhelm them, end quote. Professor Netanyahu's son, Benjamin Netanyahu, who went into a career other than academia, nevertheless spoke at his father's funeral about the field of history and cited his father as saying that, quote, a necessary component for any living body, and a nation is a living body, is the ability to identify a danger in time. End quote. This is certainly true, and to this we might add that equally important as identifying the danger is having the courage and the political gifts necessary to face the danger and to address it. These are virtues that Esther herself reflected in her story, and that is why we honor her in this story above all. 
In the end, it is striking that Benjamin Franklin, in the context of the uncertainty of everything except death and taxes, and in the context of his discussion of the chaos that was the French Revolution, referenced the American Constitution. Because if there is anything that the American founders understood, it was that the stability of a society was itself always vulnerable, and the founders created a constitutional system that recognized this fact. Antonin Scalia once commented that while we often hear complaints about gridlock in American government, the truth is that the constitutional structure was intended to produce gridlock, that the many branches of our government and the checks and balances of our constitutional system were built upon the founders' recognition that what is critical is not only democracy, but also protecting minority groups from sudden swings of the majority. Or as Scalia put it, Americans need to appreciate, quote, the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection, end quote. The Book of Esther, which describes how the Jews are suddenly targeted by society, by a vizier and by a monarch who listened to him, is a book with profound political lessons. It is a book that ends with salvation and life, but also with taxes, reminding us that Ahasuerus, the mercurial megalomaniacal king, was still in charge. We therefore read the book with joy and also with foreboding, which is why for Jews, the political heroes that are Esther and Mordechai are so worthy of reverence and remembrance. This is Mayor Soloveitchuk, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.